So there's a story that I first became aware of through a, a Unitarian Universalist minister named uh, David Blanchard. Although since then I've seen it attributed to lots of other people, so I don't know where it actually came from. It's a story about gift giving as we're entering into this season, this holiday season. It's a gift giving that has nothing to do with Christmas. And yet, as Blanchard would note, it has everything to do with Christmas. So the story is about an African boy, this young child whose teacher is returning to her native England after having taught in a school in his village for a number of years. And, and he wanted to get her a gift. But of course, he had no money, not a whole lot of ideas of how to express his gratitude and his love for this teacher. And on the day before she was to leave, he came to her and he offered her his gift, which was this absolutely gorgeous seashell, not unlike this one. And the teacher was astonished. And she said, where did you find this? Where did you find the shell? And the boy kind of straightened up and he said, well, there's only one place that you can find shells as beautiful as this. And he named a bay that was many, many miles away, a good couple days' walk out to this bay and back to his village. And the teacher was speechless almost. And she said, why? This is, this is the most beautiful shell I've ever seen. But you shouldn't have gone all that way just to get a gift for me. And he smiled, and his eyes brightened. And he said, long walk, part of gift. <laughs> long walk, part of gift. You know, the most meaningful gifts that we give each other, I think, require some version of that long walk. And over these last couple of weeks, I have been thinking a lot about the long walk. So for those of you who do not know, my father died a couple of weeks ago. And in the swirl of motion and emotion of these weeks, as I sifted through, you know, those old photos and those old memories... I've been thinking about the gifts my father gave me and the long walk that came with them. My dad was a family doctor in a small town in southeastern Illinois, and it's what he wanted to be since he was about the fifth grade. He wanted to be a small town family doctor. And as I was growing up, his practice was in this kind of squat orange brick building that sat on the edge of a cornfield across from the county hospital. And on summer days, I would get bored at home, and I would um, get on my bike, and I'd ride my bike up the hill past the elementary school, cut through this little park, and then there was this little, quick little jog of the road that led to my dad's office, and I'd slide in there. <laughs> I liked going there. But the truth was, my dad was usually too busy with patients to talk with me. If I was very lucky, I might get a quick hi and a hug as he bustled from one room to the other. 
That was okay. I wasn't really there to talk to him because what I really liked to do was I liked to go into his office and sit in his chair. Now, his office was about the smallest room in the building, and technically it was a corner office, although it really didn't hold the romance that that phrase usually (laughs) evokes. There was barely enough room for his desk that was kind of shoved into a corner. There were a couple of file cabinets, maybe a couple side chairs, and a bookshelf. And so I'd go in, and I would plop down in his chair, and I'd start spinning around. (laughs) And then I would stop the chair, and I would look at the wall behind his desk. And on that wall, he had, in all these frames, he had his, his degrees from college and from med school, He had his medical license, his board certifications, a couple of awards and certificates and memberships that he had. It was, as one of my friends would call it many years later, it was his love me wall. (laughs) It was a display of all those professional and academic achievements, and I loved that wall. I loved my dad for all those accomplishments. I admired all that it represented for him, all those goals set and met, the sacrifice, the work. And right then and there, I started making my plans for my own Love Me Wall. I didn't know exactly what I would fill mine with, but I really, I made a promise to myself that it would be at least as impressive as his was. <laughs> so that's what I did. Okay? So I spent much of the years, intervening these years, building up my Love Me Wall. I went to college, and I got a degree to hang there, and because I felt that was insufficient, I got a couple more. I became a, a registered architect in the state of North Carolina and put that one up on the wall, and then I got one from... New York, and another one from Iowa. In neat black frames, I displayed all my memberships and certificates, and it was very impressive. (laughs) It was, of course, pure ego, right? It was all about me, and that's what Love Me Walls are all about. They are designed to remind ourselves of our accomplishments and maybe remind others, too. The purpose of a love me wall is to be recognized and prove to the world, but really most to ourselves, that our lives matter, that we have done something. The problem was, the problem I found, is that no matter how impressive the love me wall became, I didn't quite feel like I'd really done much of anything. So you know, there's another memory of my father's little office that sticks with me today. If I were to stop spinning that chair and instead face his desk and face the wall behind his desk, the one opposite the love me wall, that wall is covered with photographs, with pictures. There's hundreds of them. Photos of the babies he had delivered and the school pictures of the kids he took care of as they grew up. And as those babies and children grew up into adults and began to have families of their own, there were photos of their babies. Images of generations of families that he helped when they were sick, when they were scared, when they celebrated 
the joy of a new birth or the sadness of a death. Graduations, weddings, new jobs, new bikes. These were the people who would hug him when the illness or injury had been healed, and these were the people whose hands he would hold when there was no medicine or science that would heal them. The images of a community given to my father in gratitude for his work, he had become part of their family, and they a part of his. Now, I admit, as a kid, I didn't understand that wall. If anything, I barely even looked at it. I was annoyed by those photographs. I was his family, not them. They were his job. But today, you know, today it's different. Now the focus of my memory is on those pictures of his patients. A few years ago, um, Karen Armstrong, who is a, an author of many books on comparative religion, was awarded the TED Prize, the Technology, Entertainment, and Design Prize. Perhaps you've seen the TED videos on the internet. And during her acceptance speech, she spoke emphatically about the need to restore compassion to the center of all religious traditions. Compassion, that deep awareness and understanding of another's suffering and a desire to do something about it. She noted that every one of the world's major religious traditions holds compassion for the other at its core. And she's right. I mean, you, you don't have to study, for example, the parables of Jesus to, to know and to see that compassion lies at the heart of that teaching, compassion for the sick and the broken and the lost and the forsaken. The Buddha speaks about understanding anguish and suffering in, in that he's not talking about just understanding your own, but that of all things, the suffering of all things. Because, you know, when we understand our own suffering and can recognize the same in others, we would no more inflict pain on others as we would to ourselves. And humanists, the, the humanist manifesto, right? It states, critical intelligence infused by a sense of human caring is the best method that humanity has for resolving problems. Reason should be balanced with compassion and empathy and the whole person fulfilled. And then there's the great story of Rabbi Hillel, who was a contemporary of Jesus. And the rabbi was challenged to state the entire, summarize the entire Jewish teaching while standing on one leg, right? And as he did so, he said, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the Torah. Everything else is just commentary. But you know, sometimes it feels like, sometimes it seems that we have forgotten that, that everything else is just commentary. The sense of compassion for the other perhaps has eroded, replaced by our individual and collective love me walls. Some of those walls may be like mine and my father's, 
displays of academic and professional achievement. Some of the walls may be athletic trophies. Some of the walls may be covered with photographs of your grandchildren. Whatever those achievements are that we want to remind ourselves are, nations, it occurs to me, nations to countries have their own love me walls. And perhaps for them, for countries, it looks like having the strongest military or the fastest growing economy or a permanent seat on the Security Council or just winning the World Cup. You know, it's as if our feeding our individual or collective egos has become the ultimate goal of our brief time here on Earth. For me, I thought that my satisfaction with life, my understanding of who I am in the world, could be documented, framed, and put on a wall. But after years of working on that, got a sinking feeling I was missing something. In her speech to the TED conference, Karen Armstrong sent out a call to restore compassion to the center of our religious life, you know, which seems so simple and obvious, right? Restoring compassion to our individual and collective living. You know, but if it is so simple and obvious, why is it so hard to do? I don't mean in the abstract, but in the everyday existence of our lives, our messy lives with all those people who we love, and a lot more who we don't. Not really. Why is it that this thread, this ribbon of truth that weaves through nearly every religious tradition, why is it so difficult to practice? Why do we so quickly lose patience with the woman ahead of us in the grocery line who, after watching the cashier, ring up her purchases for the last five minutes, thinks now is a good time to search my pocketbook for my checkbook. (laughs) Why, as a parent, do we get so frustrated with our children's incessant interruptions of our work? Don't you know I'm trying to write a sermon (laughs) about compassion? (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Why do, if we see the truth of compassion, do we struggle with actually being compassionate? A couple of years ago, a group of student immigrant advocates, themselves having been brought to the United States undocumented, met with Maricopa County, Arizona's infamously tough sheriff, Joe Arpaio. And in that meeting, the advocates attempted to appeal to Arpaio's compassion. And the sheriff... Give him a little credit here. Did admit that he felt compassion for the plight of the undocumented immigrants, but that his job required him to enforce the laws, saying, my job overrides my compassion. My job overrides my compassion. Now, while I'm not a particular fan of Sheriff Apio, I do relate to his dilemma. I think the sheriff has fallen into the same mistake that I sometimes find myself falling into because we tend to think of compassion as something we feel, an emotion like sadness or joy, but perhaps compassion requires something, something more from us. So going back and listening to Karen Armstrong's speech, I'm struck by a phrase she uses. She says that compassion calls us, quote, 
to dethrone ourselves from the center of our world and put another there. Dethrone ourselves from the center of the world and put another there. That's not a call to a feeling. That is a call of action. We are called to set aside our ego, ourselves at the center of our world, and serve the other person, that other being. So for the woman in the grocery store, what this means is we are called to dethrone ourselves, to relinquish our rush to get through the checkout line and on to the next hurried errand. We're called to place that woman there in the center of our world and see how we might serve her, even if it is just to give her the time and space unhurried to write a check or for our children interrupting our work. We are called to step out of the focus on ourselves and our work. We are called to place that child in that moment on the throne and find out how we may serve her, even, even if it's just enough attention to remind her that she is loved. Or Sheriff Arpaio and any of us who find that our job, our circumstance has hardened us when we've seen, when we've seen too much pain, too much suffering, too much loss, when our fears and our disappointments detach us from the people we serve, we are called by compassion to risk, to risk our vulnerability once again. We are called to be in relationships with others and to honor, to honor the sanctity of every single human being treating everyone without exception, with absolute justice and equity and respect. This is the lesson that those pictures on my dad's wall have taught me. Those pictures of patience were what he faced as he sat at the desk at the end of the day, working through those endless piles of paperwork. Those pictures were what he would glance at as he tossed a file or some mail on the ever-growing piles on his desk. These were the people that he would place at the center of his world, even just for the moment. These were the people for whom my dad took the long walk. Compassion was his gift to them, and it was given again and again, generation to generation, long walk, part of gift. For my father, the daily task was to place those patients, every new mom, every child, every family member, on the throne at the center of his world, and for a moment, focus all that knowledge and skill and love to help heal the dis-ease of that community. And by no means... By no means was he a miracle worker. All that education and training could not be enough to fix everything. Sometimes all there would be to do is to try, to try to comfort, to maybe ease a little of the pain and suffering, even if just for that moment. But I believe, I know, I know in my heart this was my father's way 
of living more deeply. His life, his life became richer and fuller with every photograph pinned to that wall. Every relationship he formed as his compassion poured forth into this community fed his soul and spirit more fully than any of the artifacts on that other wall could ever have done. Every step he took along that long walk, every step deepened his sense of purpose and meaning. The challenge that he has left for me, the challenge perhaps that he has left for all of us, this this idea of focusing on the other to learn what they need in that moment, not, not what we need. Our attention must not be on what we think we can do or even what we think we should do. Instead, instead, we have to do this dance between our love-me walls and our pictures of our patients, all of those people in our world. We must find a way to offer our gifts our gifts of compassion, of patience, our wisdom, our honesty, our trust, our presence, these gifts as we walk, as we walk with all of those people, all of those humans just being in our world. We know, we know it may not be possible to heal every brokenness, But what we can do, what we can do each day with each encounter with another human soul, with each encounter with the abundance of life in our world, what we can do is practice. Practice stepping off our throne, stepping out of the center of our world and placing someone else there. Learn what they need to be happy and serve them in whatever way we can. We may not always be successful, but what we will do, we will continue the practice. We'll try again, and again, and again. This is the long walk, and this is the gift my Father has given me, a lesson in taking the long walk as I offer my gifts to the world. And my prayer for us today, for all of us, is that we may offer our gifts with the grace and the wisdom to know that the long walk is part of gift. May it be so for you, and may it be so for us all. Let us pray together. God of our hearts, deepest, deepest yearnings, as we move through this season, this holy season of giving and receiving gifts. Let each gift we give and each gift we receive, let each gift be that long walk, that embarrassing story that the people in our lives Love us enough to take the long walk with us. Amen. And may you live in blessing.